welcome to the Central City Podcast. I'm Joe Graves, uh, pastor at Central City Church, and uh, excited to have you with us. Um, we're changing a few things on our podcast, so I wanted to let you know that. Um, we've started sharing our testimonies, our faith stories, every week in church, and we've decided to include these as part of our podcast so that you can hear um, real people talk about uh, their relationship with God in real ways. So at the beginning of the podcast, you'll hear a brief story, about four or five minutes, and then after that, we'll get into the sermon for the week and uh, whatever series we're in. So thanks for listening, and we hope that God meets you during this time. That's what we, uh, I'm just taking over for Joe today. Um, it's like, that just speaks authority. That's good. I like it. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah. Have some. Um, hi, everyone. Um, like Joe said, my name's Matt. Um, started in January, late December. Um, so it's been fun to be a part of here, um, part of the community. Um, so kind of starting out, I, I grew up in the church. I grew up Catholic, um, so actually some of the liturgy and being in a church building has been familiar and nice for me. Um, but growing up, I uh, didn't really ever have any like intellectual doubts that God existed. Like That always was a, a just a, kind of an assumption. Just Yes, I would say that God exists. Never had a huge um, quarrel with that, but it never really entered into my, into my heart. I never really never really spoke to me. It never really affected my life in any, any noticeable way. Um, so kind of moving through, um, that, that was kind of my entire life through high school. I went to Catholic high school, so it was always just kind of going through the motions, going through the routine. Um, and then moving into college, kind of being free from most structure outside of class and stuff, um, I filled that void with drinking with um, marijuana with just the kind of stuff that I thought would fill satisfaction um, and that was a overall mentally and emotionally that was a pretty rough freshman year um, trying to find satisfaction in just anything that was not um, going to be ultimately fulfilling and then um, as I uh, a guy in my major a buddy of mine in my major kept inviting me out to a ministry in college and he kept doing it um he was pretty faithful in and being um really caring about trying to get me out but he kept he was persistent and that was really um big for me because i was not going to volunteer my time to go out to um something like that in college um and then but that when i went out to it um the small group that i went to was really impactful um and it was there that i first really understood that God did love me. It wasn't just God, I, I go to church, I believe in God, but it was something that touched my heart for the first time. Um, and it was just, it was from there, it was like, wow, I, if I'm, if I'm going to believe in God, I should probably try to follow God. And so it was the first time that I was really prompted to, to try to serve the Lord. Um, and then, so moving through college, I continued to try to do that. I uh, always continued to fail, but it was, um, it was definitely, it felt the community I was a part of, the, the friends I, I was then making, it was all different. It felt um, more genuine. Everything in my life felt a little more genuine than it had been that first year. Um, I wasn't trying to put on appearances. I wasn't trying to 
make me someone I'm not. Um, it really felt like moving into a space where I was following the Lord allowed me to be who I was um, and really try to figure out internally what God had made me for. Um, and then moving into late college, I really, uh, growing up, I uh, grew up in a pretty diverse area. So moving into college, um, late college, there were a couple of um, black friends that I had. And that really um, starting to go to something they had um, that was for black students on campus, ended up on staff with a black ministry after college. Um, and so that was part of, in getting here, seeing a lot of um, a lot of heart for justice, biblical justice, moving forward. And that's uh, been a really big part of seeing God in a new way of a more active in in pursuing things of the world, um, even if I'm not living for them. Um, and so that's about it. Um, yeah, it's been, uh, yeah, that takes me up to about now. But I think just seeing seeing the Lord kind of push me from a lot of the motions to kind of <laughs> circling back to more active, like, like emotionally tied actions um, has been a fun kind of 360 all the way back into where I started instead of emotionless actions just pushing forward. So that's it. So we're in a series now uh, called uh, Horrible Bible Stories. Horrible Bible Stories. And uh, when I first thought of this series, I, I got to be honest, I, was, uh, I thought it'd be kind of fun. <laughs> but uh, it, it's turning out to be less fun, and today will be evident of that. Um, there are passages in the Bible that are horrible. And we're going to look at one of them. Today, I don't have very many uh, scripture texts on the screen, so I'm just going to let you know that. Um, if you want to, you can use, uh, you can go to centralcity.co slash handout. It's on your phone. You can follow along. I put them all, uh, all of the texts I'm referencing there. Um, it's just easier because I'm not sure I'm going to go in order. Um, I'm, I might be jumping around a little bit, so it would just be a mess trying to figure out those slides, and it's going to be a little bit more of a conversation. So if you're interested in those texts now or later, like, wait, does it really say that? You can go, and you can see the scripture reference in the text and all of that sort of stuff. I also want to let you know that there'll be a bit of a, uh, and you can leave that QR code up just for a little bit longer. I see some people snapping photos of it. Um, I do want to let you know that there's a a bit of a trigger warning today um, and for the next couple weeks. Today, just so you know, we will be looking at a couple of scripture passages that have to do with violence done against children. Um, we're looking at these really difficult, morally dubious, um, violent stories of scripture. And this week, it just happens to be about this series of stories that have to do with violence done against children. So I just want to let you know that ahead of time. We're going to try to handle it very sensitively, but I know that, that can be a trigger for some. And it's difficult for all of us. Um, next week, we will be looking at a story that has to do with violence done against a woman. And I know that that also can be a trigger. And uh, uh, we're going to handle it as sensitively as we can. You'll see how I do that today, and hopefully it helps. But I want to let you know that. The following, uh, not next week, next week, Community Sunday, but the f- next time I preach, we'll, we'll, when we come back the second week in October. The third week in October, 
because uh, next week is Community Sunday, um, we'll actually be doing an, an interview with uh, someone from the Domestic Violence Network, and we'll be talking about how to identify, how to support victims of abuse. So that'll be a really helpful, really important, and most likely a, a difficult conversation. Uh, I met the instructor from the Domestic Violence Network who will be uh, who will be interviewing, and she's brilliant and bright and. Highly, you know, just has a, is able to handle it really well. But you know, I just want to let you know ahead of time that's where we're headed. So next week, Community Sunday, and then another uh, sort of horrible Bible story, and then we'll have a, a, a more practical conversation around domestic abuse. So that's where we're going uh, today. We're going to look at some stories that have to do with violence, and they are found in the book of Second Kings, uh, and they fall along the story of Elisha. You guys remember Elisha? Um, Elisha was following uh, Elijah. And uh, you don't have to put that up yet. I'll let you know. Sorry, guys, I didn't give you any notes. I'll let you know when I want the scripture passage up. Um, Most of the scripture passage is on the handout. Um, Elijah uh, is following Elijah. And Elijah was this prophet. And uh, he kind of walks through the land of Israel. And he performs miracles and does all this sort of stuff. Elisha asks for even more power than Elijah. And he gets it through a series of events. And so he's this really powerful prophet who can do all these miracles. What, what are the ways to think about Elisha? If you, I, I kind of sat with Elisha and read through it. If you've, if you've read the Gospels, which you, if you haven't, I recommend starting there, not in Second Kings, by the way, if, you, if you're new to the Bible. Don't start in Second Kings. But if you read the Gospels, Jesus is, you know, he's walking through Israel. He's um, uh, performing miracles. He's standing up to various leaders. You know, it's a beautiful story. What, 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 you, what I realized as I was reading Elisha again is, um, are you guys familiar with, like, Marvel movies? A little few of you? Yeah. You know how, like, they have this, like, this whole thing around the multiverse, right? It's, like, very popular. Like, all the movies now have multiverse stuff. The, the general concept is like, you know, you've got Spider-Man in one universe, and then what would Spider-Man look like in a different universe where it's similar but different? That's kind of like Elisha and, and Jesus. I mean, honestly, the, their stories are so similar, but Elisha is in a slightly more, uh, he's kind of like a worse Jesus. He performs miracles like Jesus, very similar miracles. He raises someone from the dead, just like Jesus raised this one woman from the dead. He, he, he feeds people even when the food was supposed to run out, very similar. He does all of these kinds of same miracles, but, he, but it's like he, he doesn't have necessarily a message of love. You know, he, he does something. We're going to look at some of the stuff he does where you're just like, Elisha, that seems like that's immoral. Uh, Jesus is just a much better prophet, but, but they are very similar, um, but, but in very different ways. So I'm going to look at this one passage. It stood out on the list of horrible stories that people wanted to look at. It's a, it's the story of Elisha and the two bears, which sounds like a children's story. And it is (laughs) in a way. I'm going to start a few verses before it, though. 2 Kings uh, 2, 19 to 25. If you want to follow along, you can go to the handout. I'll let you guys know when I want that slide up. Please don't put it up yet. <laughs> Gee, golly, guys. It's like a, that's for later. Whew. Yeah, don't give it away. I have two slides. I have just very, yeah. All right. 2 Kings 2, 19 to 25 says this. Now, the people of the city said to Elisha, so Elisha is showing up, he's wandering the world, he's he's trying to help people for the most part. We'll see that that's not always the case. But he he comes to this city, and the people say to Elisha, the location of the city is good as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, the land is unfruitful. 
So he walks into this village, and they, they, have, they like, say, you know what? Like, our location's a great location. That's real estate, location, location, location. They're like, this is a great location, except for there's the, the water's bad. And, and, and all these people have speculations on why the water is bad. But for the most part, they're having trouble growing crops. they obviously are getting sick when they drank, it, that sort of thing. So he says this. He's going to fix their water problem. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And so they brought it to him, and he went out to the spring of water and threw the salt into it. And he said, thus says the Lord, I have made this water wholesome. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So something was happening where people were getting sick, and people couldn't get pregnant. And when they got pregnant, you know, they couldn't go to full term. Like, it, this was a problem that was happening. And he does this miracle that involves salt, and he sprinkles it on the water. And then it says, 22, so the water has been wholesome to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. So this is the first story, and I share this story because this is context. Elisha gives living water. Very, like I said, kind of an alternative, worse Jesus. He gives living water. He shows up, and there's water is bad, and so he goes, and he does this miracle, and now they're wa- and he gives life to an entire community. You can't have a community without water. So you're like, Elisha, I'm rooting for you, man. Good job. You're saving people's lives, okay? This is important. This is where we start with Elisha. And then verse 23. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go away, bald head. Go away, bald head. Now, I just want to, it needs to be said, there's nothing wrong with not having hair, okay? That needs to be, and you know what? We don't need that form of discrimination in the world. And I'm just here to tell you that it's inappropriate. I'm not endorsing Elisha's behavior as a result of their jeering, um, but I'm, you know, it's okay to be bald. And so t- verse 24, he says, when he turned around and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. So he cursed them. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And uh, you're just like, well, that escalated very quickly. Two bears came, this is in the Bible, by the way, you can look it up. Uh, Two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. This would be, you know, maybe a subplot for a horror movie. That's why we're looking at it. Verse 25, from there he went up to Mount Carmel and returned to Samaria. And I'm just like, biblical writer, you could have given us a little bit more. (laughs) Because the story's over. Just to recap. These kids make fun of him. He curses them. Two bears come up, maul all, what is it, 42 kids, boys. They could be teenagers. And then he moves on. End of story. So this passage doesn't get preached on very often, so welcome to Central City Church. Uh, It's not an easy one to preach on, partly because there's just not a lot there. Um, I'll tell you how it's been handled in the past. This has been used, uh, at least in the Christian church, I'm not sure in, in the historic uh, Judaism, although uh, I would be, wouldn't be surprised if this is the case, but in the Protestant church, it's been used as a tale taught to children to honor their elders or else. Um, in fact, I, I, I saw some uh, Sunday school material where this was a story used. Not a great story for Sunday school. I'm going to make sure, Molly, you know, this. We're not, we don't teach this story, right? Uh, 
with the kids. But uh, I saw some coloring pages of the bears mauling the kids. I'm like, this is probably a bad idea. Um, but it was used to kind of like, you know, honor your elders. It was used in like uh, the way that we would use uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I mean, very similarly. Here's a story of warning. Don't go steal people's, you know, stuff. And, uh, or the, the house with the, you know, the, they, they go to the candy house. And I'm pretty sure it doesn't end well for the kids in the original story of that. You know, so it's, it was used in this very violent sort of way to scare your children. Parents, I'm not saying that that's necessarily the best use of this story. I, I want to suggest that maybe it, it means something else. I, 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 based on what I've studied and based on what I've read and as I've read the longer story of Elisha, here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Now, I will warn you. I'm going to solve one problem. And I'm going to create a whole lot of other problems for us this morning. But one of the ways that we can solve this problem with Elisha doing a strange thing is really these two stories next to each other are there on purpose. One story is Elisha giving life, and the next story is Elisha handing out death, or at least violence. And, and that ultimately is the point. Later on in this uh, story of Elisha, he's interacting. Uh, there's this guy who uh, gets leprosy, and he's sick, and he goes to a king, and the king you know, um, uh, he asked the king to help him get better. And, and this really gives us a picture of what, what all of this story is about. He says this, it's Second Kings verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 7. He says, when the king of Israel read the letter um, from this guy who was like sick and he wanted to be healed, he tore his clothes and he said, am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. This king says, I don't have the power to give life or death because I'm not God. And there's a sense that you kind of get a picture of how they viewed God, that God had the power to give life and death. And, and Elisha, as a prophet, meant mouthpiece of God. And so we get these stories where in one instance he's giving life and in the other instance he's handing out death. It's not about Elisha at all. It's about this wrestling that the people have of their view of God. They believe that God had the power to give you life and you death. And that's, that was just in power. That's what God could do. And, and, and that's how Elisha was acting as an agent of God. It wasn't about Elisha. And, and, and in other words, one way to say this, it's not a story about ethics or morality. It's a theological story, which is often the case in the Bible. It's not a, the Old Testament doesn't have, isn't filled with ethics. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible, Old Testament especially, that isn't about what's right and wrong. It's about what God can do because God is God and God can do whatever God wants to do. And so in this case, we're, we're, we're forced to examine this question that, that God is able to dish out both life and death, which creates this new problem. That if God hands out life, we believe that, but God can also hand out death. And we're left with this question. I asked everyone this morning, if you volunteer, you get asked these questions sometimes. Uh, when you're supposed to be doing something else, we end up talking about this. Is God to blame for the suffering in the world? It's one of the big questions. You know, it's, I mean, I've met very few people who haven't wrestled with it. And at the heart of it, we're asking the question, does God do more than just give out life? What's God's relationship to death? What's God's relationship to suffering? Is God responsible for the suffering in this world? Is death and suffering from the hand of God? If so, How? Who's wrestled with that? Has anyone wrestled with that question before? Okay, okay, I'm not alone here. This is a big question. I'm curious. How would you respond? Anyone have any ideas? 
I'm not going to answer the question fully today, so I, I want to throw it out and, and see what, what are some of your thoughts. What's your, is God responsible for suffering? We had a variety of opinions shared already this morning, friends. We didn't agree. I mean, well, we didn't disagree either, but, you know, it's complicated, so there's lots of ways to look at it. Any thoughts? Is God to blame for the suffering in this world? How about just yes or no if we made it binary? Okay, I got a no. Someone shook their head. I got a yes. All right. I got a no. I got a maybe. Yeah. Okay, hold on to that question. Here's what we know about Elisha's story. We know that Elisha's story is filled with suffering, and it's not his suffering. I I would suggest, and I haven't done an in-depth study on this, but once again, I wouldn't be surprised if this is true, um, that these series of chapters where Elisha's walking around doing miracles is the highest concentration of violence done against children in the Bible. Um, I'll share a couple of these very briefly. You can read the whole passages once again on the handout. In 2 Kings 3, 26 to 27, we learn of a foreign king who's at war. He loses his battle. He's mad. He worships it, you know, other gods besides Israel. And because of he's mad and because he lost, he takes his son and he hangs him up on the wall as a sacrifice and kills him. And his body hangs on the wall. Which is like just this weird, medi- I mean, it's pre-medieval. It's just insane. In 2 Kings chapter 4, we learn that uh, because of a woman's debt, she was a, she was a widow, her husband died, she had all this debt, that uh, her creditors were going to come and take her children as slaves. Now, thankfully, in the story, Elisha actually steps in and prevents that from happening, but we get a glimpse of the world that they're living in because they don't stop it by saying it's wrong. They stop it by solving the problem. And so there was this world where, you know, if you were owed money, your kids could be, just be taken as slaves, and here's the thing, you know, we talked about different ways of handling this text. Um, th- these stories of violence still happen today, a lot of them. Th- th- that, uh, that idea of, like, you having debt and then you have to sell your kids into, like, your kids get taken away from you because of the debt you have, that happens in countries around the world. And I don't think that happens in America, generally speaking, um, but it does happen in other places. There's a number of documentaries I've been able to watch done by International Justice Mission where this is the case. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 4, verse 20, we learn about a young kid this kid who's given to this, this mother couldn't get pregnant. She finally gets pregnant. There's all these kinds of stories. And the, the child um, uh, grows up a little bit. He goes out and works in the field. He's still a kid. And he gets kind of sick. And he gets a headache. And he goes home. And he lays in his mother's lap. And he dies. Now, once again, Elisha actually saves this child. But this, too, is something that still happens. And there's nothing worse than losing your child. But it happens. And it's heartbreaking. The worst example of violence done against children is, is in this part, though. It's 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 24 to 30, 33. Um, uh, I'm close to putting the scripture passage up, but not yet. Um, 2 Kings, there's, there's this famine. They're in, they're in war. They've, their, their city's been sieged, so they're stuck inside the walls, and they're running out of food. And, and then this happens. I'm going to put, now before we put it up, I'm going to put this verse up. I'm not going to read it. It's fairly graphic, so if you want to ignore it, just don't look at the screen or go to the handout. But if you want to see another, like this is what's happening during this time, let's put it up. I'm going to give you a second just to read it for those who want to read it. This king shows up, you know, there's famine, and he runs into these, uh, this woman, and she tells him this story.
I got to admit, I haven't read this passage before. Somehow I missed that in Sunday school class. I read this, and I took a screenshot of it, and I texted Alyssa while I was studying this, and it said, WTF. Like, what? You couldn't have left that out of the Bible? You know the worst part about this? I went and did some research. This happens as well. It happened as, you know, there was reports of this happening in extreme famine in parts of China just 50 years ago. Um, this, and so, you know, we're left with a question, you know, with all of these examples, these, these, these are sometimes are rooted in ancient stories. And you're like, that is, there is, we still live in a violent world. You can take that down now. We still live in a violent world in a world that's difficult and where terrible things happen. Sadly, you know, our main relationship to violence just to get a little preachy here, is uh, true crime. Anyone love true crime? Yeah, I'm fan. We're watching uh, Only Murderers in the Building, where it's like a, you know, it's about true crime. And they have some good poignant little lines in there. But, you know, even in that situation, we are so disconnected from the violence in the world that we turn it into entertainment. But as Christians, we have to wrestle with this because really bad things happen to good people, to bad people. It happens across. We have to wrestle. Okay. And ultimately, the question as people of faith is, what is God's relationship to the violence in the world? Is God responsible? Yes, no, maybe. What's our response? Well, I think ultimately, one of the best responses we can have and at the heart of this problem is what happens next. That you, if you read the story, these terrible things happen to these children. Um, the king hears about it. He laments. He tears his clothes. He puts on burlap. I mean, he is grieving what is happening to his community, and people witness it. And then he says this, I'm going to get the head of Elisha, which is another way of saying this is God's fault. He's mad at the, the prophet of God because Because this is God's fault, so that prophet is going to die. And he charges after the prophet. But what's interesting is when he shows up to the prophet's house, and he's going to take off his, you know, he's going to kill Elisha because he's so mad that God is allowing this thing to happen. He doesn't end up taking Elisha's head. He ends up saying this. You can put this verse up on the screen as well. And I think this is is, is the most important part. It's 2 Kings 6, 33. The king came down to him and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I hope in the Lord any longer? An immense amount of energy has been spent by pastors sitting in places like mine to convince you that God isn't bad and that God doesn't hurt people. And I wonder if maybe we've gone too far because most of us, you can put that question back up, have asked this question. God allowed this to happen. Why should I hope in the Lord? This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I hope in the Lord any longer? I want you to hear this. I I believe God loves us. And God doesn't want us to suffer. I want you to hear this. God doesn't want us uh, to, to, 
to die. God, God doesn't want bad things for us. I, I need you to hear that, that God's relationship to violence is not pleasure, that God doesn't enjoy the fact that bad things happen in this world. In fact, Jesus says it like this, and we understand Jesus to be the best representative of who God is. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? And, or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a steak? If you then, though you are not great, not perfect, if you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, your parent in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? This is what Jesus says about God. Like, and so if, if you had a loving parent, I know not all of, all of us have loving parents, so this makes this really difficult, but if you had a loving parent or if you're trying to be a loving parent, you think about that relationship. When bad things happen to your child, you know, you want good things for them. And he says, God is the same way. But I would be lying to you if I, if I suggested that, 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 that there isn't a certain level of responsibility. The question I ask is God to blame for the suffering to the world. And I don't know. But I do know this. God created everything. You know, so I do think there's a little bit of responsibility. Even if I could convince us that, that God is not to blame for bad things, that, it, that if God, if I could intellectually understand that it's complicated and that God loved us and God doesn't want bad things, even if I could convince us intellectually, it probably wouldn't stop making, it wouldn't stop the way we feel towards God when bad things happen. Do you know what I'm saying? We'd still be upset. We'd still be angry. And here's what I want to suggest to you. God doesn't need you to defend God. God can take it. We're so used to humans passing blame. We're so used to when someone is accused of something, they get all defensive. Do you ever get defensive, you know, when you're accused of something? And your ego kicks in, and you're like, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. And I think we project that onto God, and God's like trying to, we have to like, especially pastors, we have to protect God's reputation. Uh, friends, you don't have to protect God's reputation. God can handle it. God's a big girl, you know, she, she can handle it. God can handle it. So here's my answer to this question. Is God responsible for the suffering in the world? I don't know but I'm convinced that God's willing to take the responsibility. You ever heard the term scapegoat? It's usually used in a bad sense when someone becomes a scapegoat. You blame somebody who's not responsible, and, you know, no one wants to be the scapegoat. Like in a workplace, you could become the scapegoat. Like, I, that, that, that didn't go well. It wasn't my fault, but I became the scapegoat. They, everyone blamed me, and I had to take all of the blame. And it's usually people try to avoid being scapegoats. But as you probably know, the term scapegoat comes from the Old Testament, it has to do with a goat where all the community would place their sins, all of the suffering in the world, all of the mistakes and evil, they'd place it on the goat in this symbolic ritual, and then they'd send the goat out of the community, exile the goat, carrying all that sin. This is a story that was eventually lived out in the person of Jesus. Jesus came, God in the flesh. He walked amongst us 2,000 years ago to take on the blame, and the sin of the world. To take it on. To take on its punishment, to take on responsibility for it, to, to bear it all, ultimately then hanging on a cross. Another violent story. Another horrible story. So we wouldn't have to. So I want you to hear this. I don't know if God's responsible for the suffering in the world, but I am absolutely convinced that God's willing to take responsibility for it. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? He'll take it on. 
take the punishment for it, take the pain associated with it, all the way to the point of hanging on a cross. I want you to hear this. I, I believe that God loves us. And, and I think there's two things that, that are true that you just can't argue with. The first one is this. Suffering happens in the world. It happens to people we don't want it to happen to. It happens to children. It happens to women. It happens to men. It happens to people who are vulnerable. And in fact, it probably happens to people who are vulnerable at a greater rate than those who aren't, right? That's what it means to be vulnerable. I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's what God wants. But I am saying we all know that it happens, and we can't turn our eyes. That's why we're doing the series. We can't pretend like it doesn't. It happens. The second thing I think is true is that God is not uncomfortable with however that makes you feel about God, about the church, about yourself. God, one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me was somewhere along the line, someone taught me that God could handle me. That whatever I was thinking, whatever terrible thing I've done, whatever I felt guilty about, whatever hurt I was carrying, that none of that embarrassed God. That God didn't look at that and was like, ooh, that makes me uncomfortable. I wish you wouldn't have brought that up. You ever been with somebody you thought was a friend and then you tell them something personal and then all of a sudden they get uncomfortable, like, oh, that was too much. They couldn't handle that. That's never God. In the very depths and quiet of your soul, whatever it is that you're bearing, whether it was violence done against you or violence you've done to someone else or something else, some deep, dark secret you don't want anyone to know about, none of that makes God uncomfortable. And in all of it, God says, I am there and I love you. And you could say, hey, you know what, God, but isn't this your fault? Aren't you responsible for the suffering? Job asked that question to God. We're not on a series on Job. But um, God gave him like a four, four or five chapter answer. I'll summarize it for you. It's complicated. He basically tells Job, like, you're not God. I don't know how, God's like, I don't know how to explain this to you, how all of this works, because you're not God. There's this great mystery to how it all works. But in the midst of it all, whatever we have, Job is never penalized or made fun of or gets in trouble for being honest. I found in my life that when I'm frustrated with something or I'm frustrated with somebody or I get mad with somebody and I let them know because that's part of my personality, sometimes you get in trouble for even being honest. You ever gotten in trouble for being honest? You know, where you're just like, you know what, this is like, this really upsets me. And they're like, well, you shouldn't be upset and you shouldn't have, like, I'm like, that's human relationships. I'm here to tell you that whatever you are feeling about whatever is going on in your life in the world, God is not uncomfortable with it. God knows it already, and God loves you. God doesn't look down on you, and God is willing to be with you through the end. Let's pray. God, we come before you, and God, in a world where we are so quick to try to find answers and to push blame, and we want to know who's responsible, Lord, regardless of how all of that works technically, I am so grateful that you're able to just solve the problem and saying, you know what? I'll take responsibility. That even with all the brokenness in the world, you were willing to say, I'm going to own this problem. I'm going to take it on upon myself. I'm going to come and live and heal and walk amongst us and eventually bear the violence of the world on the cross. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd come and just minister to us that 
as we experience various kinds of violence, whether it's physical or emotional or relational, that you would come and just show us a way out, that you, you don't want things to happen to us, that this is hard and that this is complicated and that you're, you don't wish for us to suffer, but you're willing to be with us. You're willing to provide deliverance. The, that when we cry out in anger and frustration, you don't turn away and say, well, I'm not going to talk to you now because you're mad at me. No, Lord, you, you lean in and you say, how can I help? How can I deliver you? So meet us in that moment, Lord. Help us to come before you. The one who took the sins of the world, help us fall at your feet. In your name we pray. Amen. You may stand for our closing song, and I invite you to take this time to, to wrestle with your relationship with God and what that means for you and what God might have to say to you as we're invited to come to the altar.